Ah, Melchizedek. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Hey, welcome to church this morning. It's great to be with you. Uh, what a gift to get to celebrate baptisms together today. We're so glad that you've joined us. If you're here to uh, see a friend baptized, maybe you haven't been in church in a while or something like that, we just want to say a special welcome to you. We know it takes a lot to walk into strange new places like this, and we really are honored to have you uh, with us today. Before we get to those baptisms, though, last week, Pastor Larry Zyman promised you the greatest Melchizedek sermon in the history of Melchizedek sermons. Thankfully, that's a very short history, but thank you, Larry. So this is the uh, issue, especially if you have never heard of Melchizedek, you are wondering what you've just walked into. We are teaching through a book in the New Testament called Hebrews. And one of the challenges of teaching through Hebrews is that this was written to Jewish Christians who knew their Hebrew Bibles really, really well, what we call the Old Testament. They knew their Old Testament really, really well. So there's a whole chapter in the, the book of Hebrews dedicated to this man, Melchizedek, and they're, you know, they're like, Oh, Melchizedek, yes, yes. I remember him from Torah school when I was growing up. And we hear the name Melchizedek, and we say, well, what is a Melchizedek exactly? Actually, I just heard two weeks ago that a midwife here delivered a kid named Melchizedek. Isn't that awesome? I wonder if his parents know what that, what that means. Anyway, so there's, there's three parts to this morning's 25-minute sermon, Okay. First, we're just going to talk about who this Melchizedek was, especially in relationship to Abraham. Then we're going to talk about what Hebrews does with him because they are a little bit different. They're related, but they're different. And then at the end, I'll try to connect the two. Okay? So, as the video said, Melchizedek is a mysterious figure that appears only one time in the story of the Bible and then one more time in a psalm. So he gets five total verses in the Old Testament, but they occur at these really important places in the story, like breadcrumbs that the Spirit of God is dropping over thousands of years to lead us to something greater. And the first of those breadcrumbs is in the story, uh, as you saw, of a man named Abraham. So this is in Genesis chapter 14. It'll be on the screens here in a second, but if you wanted to look at it. It'll, it'll be on page 10 this morning. Here's what I love about the story of Abraham. Abraham is, is the story of an ordinary person like you or I, or like the recipients of this letter to the Hebrews, who is trying to figure out if he really can trust this God that he has come into relationship with. It's just Abraham and his wife. There are no uh, temples to this God where they can go and learn about him. There's no written word as far as we know. There's no written word of God at this point in history. There's no community of people that worship God. It's just Abraham and Sarah leaning on each other. And I have to think that from time to time, like many of us, they ask themselves, are we crazy? Have you ever asked that question? Are we crazy? learning to walk with this God that we cannot see. And it's not like anything necessarily is going wrong. Okay, actually Melchizedek 
enters the story at a time when Abram's just won this battle against a much larger alliance of kings. But it's clear, if you were to read around the story, it's clear Abram is struggling. His faith is struggling. He's wrestling with unbelief. The main thing that God promised them, a child, is not happening for them. And year after year after year has gone by, the thing they want most in the world, which is a child, is not happening for them. And so you have to think that they wondered, are we, are we the crazy ones here? Now, several times in our study of Hebrews uh, this spring, we've talked about something called unbelief. Unbelief is a condition of the heart. Jesus talked about it frequently. Hebrews has talked about it. Uh, the sin of unbelief is a refusal to trust the word of God. Okay, it's, it's a decision not to trust the word of God. The sin of unbelief is hearing you know, what God says in his word and then deciding, I just, I cannot believe that. I don't trust that. And I'm going to trust my own wisdom instead of God's. Everyone here is prone to this, by the way. But if it goes unchecked, uh, unbelief hardens our hearts to the point where we can no longer hear the word of God and we fall away. That's the danger that Hebrews is written to. Now, faith, on the other hand, faith is a decision to trust the word of God even when I can't see it. So faith hears the word of God and says, okay, I'm not seeing that. I'm not feeling that. I'm not experiencing that. But because you have said it, God, I believe you. God cannot lie, and if this is what he said, then I trust him. So here's an example just from the last week, okay? My youngest son, Jordan, was sick on Monday, and I'm trying to teach the boys to make prayer, their knee-jerk reaction to life, and so I said, you know, let's pray about it. Uh, God wants us to bring everything to him in prayer. Let's ask God to heal you. I believe he can. I've experienced that. So let's ask God to help you get a great night's sleep and to wake up in the morning like you leap out of bed, you are so excited to go to school and everything. Let's ask God to just blow our minds tonight, okay? And I left that conversation, you know, we sent him to bed and I left the conversation like, okay, God, here's a softball. You know what I mean? Like... Here you go. I can't serve it up any better than this. Bump set spike. Here's a 10-year-old kid I'm trying to teach to trust you, and all you have to do is zap his little body into health, okay? And there's going to have... The, so I'm all ready in the morning for this amazing conversation about faith and the goodness of God, and we prayed about it, buddy, and look what God did, and he woke up the next morning more miserable than ever. He had a fever. He hadn't had a fever before, coughing, just nasty stuff, and wound up spending the whole day on the couch. He had to miss school and the whole thing. And so instead, I have to have this conversation with him where I say, well, buddy, you know, we asked God for this, and he, he's done this instead, but God has said in his word that everything he does and everything that he allows really is for, it's, it's best that, that this is happening somehow is best. And faith is a decision to say, okay, I don't get that, but I believe you. Now, 
As it turns out, if you're a 10-year-old boy, a day on the couch is better than any day in school anyway. So Jordan's faith is fine. You don't need to pray for him. But I share that to say this is the fight of faith. This is the battle with unbelief. It's saying, I believe what God has said. Even when I do not understand and I cannot see it right now. And I think that Melchizedek entered Abraham. If you read, you know, the, the chapter after what we're going to read now, I think Melchizedek entered Abram's story at a time when he was struggling in a moment just like that. So uh, let's, let's just, let's, it's just four verses. Here's the scripture from Genesis chapter 14, verse 17. should be on the screen. It says, after Abram's return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and Melchizedek blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Let's make a few observations, okay? Melchizedek is the king, verse 18, the king of Salem. Again, you saw in the video, Salem is the original. It's the most ancient name we have for the city of Jerusalem. It means peace. We see Melchizedek is a, is a royal priest. We talked about this a few weeks ago. There is no one else in the Bible who is both king and priest except for the Lord Jesus. So uh, we talked about how unique it is and, and why we, we don't just need a priest who suffers with us, but a king that can actually make things right. Now, we're not told about anything where he, about where he comes from, and that's interesting because Genesis is built on genealogies, okay? So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. It's a genre all unto it, it, its own, and yet Melchizedek has no family tree. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that he fell out of the sky or popped out of the ground, okay, just so we're clear. It's just that Genesis doesn't care about this particular, where this particular person came from. And it, that's interesting because he's a priest of God. Actually, Melchizedek is the very first priest of God in the whole Bible. And Genesis is like, I don't care where he comes from. Here's a Canaanite. So he's completely outside the story of Israel, basically. Here's a Canaanite king who somehow knows and loves and worships the God of Israel. And it feels to me in the story like it, it's one of those moments where God is saying to Abram, Abram, you're not crazy. You are not alone. I've got you. Here's another guy that knows me too. And I'm with you. So here's a genuine priest of the God of Israel before Israel even existed. And he comes out to greet Abram. What does he bring with him when he comes out to greet Abram? He brings bread and wine. Okay, that's a first in the Bible as well. It's the same elements that we share in communion today. They're a sign of blessing and refreshment and unity. So Melchizedek is saying to Abram, uh, you're a brother. And then Abram turns and gives him a tenth of everything that he has. It's a way of saying, he's recognizing this, this is the real deal. This guy is the real deal. He's a priest of the Most High God, and we belong to each other. 
And then poof, that's it. Four verses and we never, I mean, that's all that we know about Melchizedek. Now fast forward a thousand years and King David is on the throne of Jerusalem. So he's on the throne of Melchizedek. And he writes a song, we call it Psalm 110, and it's, it's all about the Messiah. And he says, this is Psalm 110 verse 4, it's on the screen. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you, the Messiah, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So those are the only times he's mentioned. Dropped like breadcrumbs. And a thousand years later, the same spirit that left those breadcrumbs picks them up and the author of Hebrews uses Melchizedek to encourage Jewish Christians whose faith is failing. Because there's something we're meant to see here in the story of Melchizedek that if, if, we, if we lose it, if we lose Jesus, we'll lose everything. So what does Hebrews do with these breadcrumbs. What, what are they pointing to? Let's, let's go to Hebrews together. Okay, finally, yes, we're finally gonna get to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter seven. Okay, everybody turn there with you. Even if you're a kid, you can turn to Hebrews chapter seven. It's page 1004, Hebrews chapter seven. I'm actually gonna start reading in chapter six, verse 19, okay? And by, so we got a bunch of people we're baptizing. So I'm just actually, we're just gonna walk through this passage together, Okay. So, uh, Hebrews 6, 19. Are you there? Sam, there, if you're there. Don't lie in church. Are you there? Hebrews 6, 19. I want you to be able to follow along. Page 1004. Here's, here's what he says. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to, Abraham, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. So if, if you're unfamiliar with the story of the Bible, Levi was the tribe of Israel from whom all the priests came and the law required that you come from the right family. That was the, that was the legal requirement. Verse six. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So tithes pass up the chain of command and blessings flow down. Okay, that's how it works. Verse 8, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. So Israel gives tithes to Levi. But in the other case, by the one of whom it testifies that he lives. So Abraham gives to Melchizedek. One might even say, this will blow your mind, 
One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Let's just pause for a second. How's everybody doing? <laughs> anybody's, anybody's head hurt yet? Are you okay? Is your teenager awake? Okay, look, here, just a quick aside. Is everybody ready for a quick aside? Listen, th this is not the first time we've come across Melchizedek in Hebrews. Okay? This conversation we're having today actually began in chapter 5, where the author is saying, we have this great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he said, in chapter 5, verse 11, you were here, it was great, you remember. He said, quote, about this, this whole Melchizedek thing, we have a lot to say, and it's hard to explain. Can everyone say amen? It's hard to explain because you've become dull of hearing, and then he says in verse 13, unskilled in the word of righteousness. Thank you very much, Hebrews. He's like, you know, we wish we could tell you more about this, but this is not theology for babies. It's not simple. Now, what a great word for the church, okay? Theology can be simple. Okay, we've talked about this already this spring, how Charles Spurgeon said, my whole theology can be summed up in four words. What, you remember? Jesus died for me. Amen, praise God, and hallelujah. But we want our theology to be only simple, right? We want to know what it means right now for my life today, and it doesn't always work that way. Okay? Is everybody okay? God is immense. Don't you want to not be bored with him two years after your baptism? And maturity, okay, this is the whole theme of chapter six. Maturity takes time. Okay, if you're being baptized this morning, heads up. There is no shortcut to Christian maturity and not everything in the Bible has to be simple to be awesome. Okay, it doesn't have to lay on the surface to be worthwhile. And if, I'm just, okay, if I could just exhort you, if you just don't want to be bothered with this stuff and you're just like, I just, I would rather be golfing. It's a beautiful day. And I've come to a church where they're talking about Melchizedek. I just want to say, if you have no appetite for that, you're gonna stay immature. And that wouldn't be a big deal except that immature Christians are Christians who drift. And when they encounter hard things, they just get rocked. The whole point of this, which we just read about, is to see, if, if, you would, if we would stop and think about this and dig into this, Hebrews says this becomes an anchor for your soul. This whole thing about Melchizedek becomes an anchor to make you solid, to keep you from drifting from the hope of the gospel. So, what does Hebrews do with this? He says in verse four, look, this is the only command in everything we're gonna read today. Look, he says, at this man. Look how great he is. 
king of Salem, verse 1, the king of peace, the priest of the most high God, totally unique in the story of the Bible. Verse 1, he blesses Abraham, and Abraham in turn gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Then he zooms in in verse 2 on Melchizedek's name. It literally means the king of righteousness. So he's the king of peace, the king of righteousness. Verse 3, he has no father or mother or genealogy neither beginning of days nor end of life, but he, he looks like the Son of God and continues a priest forever. The author is like, why do you think this is here? Why do you, of the 10,000 things we wish we knew about Abraham, why are these four, these four verses just kind of just dropped into the middle of Abraham's story? A, a king of righteousness and peace, a royal priest king, older and greater than Abraham, older and greater than Levi, older and greater than Israel itself, a man with no apparent beginning or end, a priest that existed completely apart from the law. Why do you think that's here? In verse 7 he says, it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. It's, it's as though the author is saying, can't you see? Can't you see what he's saying? Can't you see that God has been telling just one story since the beginning of the world about a savior for the whole world? Jesus is greater. And Jesus, his priesthood is greater, his salvation of greater, is greater, and it's been there under our noses for thousands of years. And we just couldn't see because he hadn't come. And now you want to leave him? Now you want to go back to the, to the law, to priests, to sacrificing animals? Don't do that. Look at how great, he says, this man is. Anyone's faith struggling today? Anyone's faith struggling? You're, you hear the word of God. You know what he calls you to. You know what he says about you. You know what he's promised you. And you're just saying, I do not see that. I'm not feeling that. Don't you see? The story, the breadcrumbs that God has dropped throughout history. If you're here today and you would, you would identify as a secular person or an agnostic person, you've lost confidence in established religion, I, I, just, I would put it to you. And can't you see? Now, a, a critical biblical scholar would look at the story of Melchizedek, and they do this, and they say, well, this is so remarkable. Clearly, this story was added sometime in, say, the 6th century B.C. There is no evidence for that. Zippo. The evidence actually suggests, we have, the, we have the most ancient name for the city of Jerusalem. The evidence suggests this is a super old story. Don't you see? Then he continues in verse 11 with a rhetorical question. Okay? He says, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the order of Aaron? So what is Hebrews doing? What's the point? He, he's saying righteousness, perfection, holiness, justification has always come apart from religion. Always. This has always been the plan. 
that your perfection, that's the word he uses in verse 11, your perfection and righteousness and your ability to, to enter the presence of God without fear, the plan has always been that it's by faith, not by sacrifices, not by offerings, not by the law. Did you know that you were made for perfection? That the law actually demands perfection from you? Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. We, you were made, we were made for moral and spiritual and personal perfection. And believe it or not, you feel that. Okay, so here's the, uh, the other challenge with teaching Hebrews in this context is for this audience, their default setting was religion an external religion, our default setting in the United States is secularism. Okay, even if you've been in church for 20 years, you probably still think like a secular person, okay? Uh, and maybe, maybe you're not a Christian at all. Your default setting is, well, these silly Jewish people. Of course you can be happy without the law. I'm happy without the law. Here's the thing. Secularism is a religion. It has its own priests, though you don't call them that. It has its own sacrifices, though you don't call them that. All people, at all times and all places, are driven by this need to be perfect, to be justified. Americans, of all the people in the history of the universe, are the most driven and obsessive people ever. Where do you think that comes from? You are trying to prove to the universe that you should be here, that you're worthwhile, that the air you breathe is not a waste, okay? So all people at all times and places are deeply religious. And Hebrews is speaking to you as well. These people are wanting to turn away from Jesus for an external religion. And Hebrews is saying, if the religion you came from was so great, why does King David talk about the need for a different priest altogether? Now, I have, just for the sake of time, I have to summarize verses 12 through 14 with this. Religion, whether we're talking about Judaism or secular religion, cannot make us perfect. Your striving and your performance and your achievement is not gonna bring you the peace and the righteousness that you long for. The righteousness and peace we long for cannot come by a self-imposed law. It cannot come by a religious law. It has, to be, it has to come from somewhere else. And so, verse 15 says, this becomes even more obvious when we see that Jesus comes to us from a different angle altogether. So over here, you've got all religion. Secular religion, Jewish religion, whatever, fill in the blank religion. Here it is over here. Sacrifices, offering, self-justification, striving, proving yourself. Okay, everybody got that? Verse 15 is saying, Jesus comes from way over here. He's of a different order altogether. Completely outside the ordinary religious channels. He's not a part, he's older than Abraham, older than Levi, greater than Israel itself. This is what, let me just read verse 15. It says, this becomes even more evident when a priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement, 
In, order, in other words, he doesn't come from the, the right family, but on the basis, but on the power of an indestructible life. If, you, if you're here this morning and you're, what, is, what makes Christianity unique? Here is Jesus' resume. An indestructible life. He has been raised from the dead and reigns forever. That's his resume. And it is completely unique. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's just finish our reading together, okay? Verse 18, for on the one hand, a, a former commandment, the law of Moses, is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Again, our access to God is not dependent on our performance, but upon Jesus. Our hope is not grounded in religion. It is not grounded in how well we're doing. If your hope is, and this happens with Christians all the time, if your hope actually is grounded in how well you're doing, then when you're not doing well, you'll be shaken. You'll become neurotic. You'll start overanalyzing. You'll start navel-gazing. You'll start thinking, how am I doing? Am I really trusting Jesus? Am I really Christian? Blah, blah, blah. Our hope, it says, is a better hope. And we draw near on the basis of Jesus alone. Verse 20, he says, this was not without an oath. Okay, this didn't just pop out of nowhere. David promised this a thousand years in advance. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Verse 22, last thing we'll talk about. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Let's talk about verse 22 and then we'll, we'll get to the baptisms. Last week, Darcy came home from church and said her favorite part of everything that was talked about last week was actually chapter 5, verse 18. It says, God cannot lie. That was her big takeaway. He cannot lie. There is so much in our world that is uncertain. There is so much that does not make sense. Here is a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. God will never lie to you. He cannot lie to you. This means that the benefits of belonging to Jesus are secure because they're based on the existence of God. As long as God is God, and how long will that be, everybody? You're okay. As long as he is God, you will be okay. And how can we know that? How can we know? Jesus himself is the answer. He is the guarantor of a better covenant. We have not been given a religion to cling to. We have not been asked to trust in anything that we do or have done. He himself is the surety. That's, an, that's the old word. Older translations trans called it the surety. In other words, if this is what God, if Jesus is what God is like, you can know you can trust him. Here's how Romans 8 puts it. 
Same thing. Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Everything you are longing for is there in Jesus alone and nothing else. So we have 14 people, if I, you know how I do numbers, I'm really sure it's 14, I'm pretty sure it's 14. <laughs> we have 14 people being baptized in this service. I just want to say, say their names really quickly, okay? In uh, uh, Cash Barbian, is Cash here? Where are you at? Where's Cash? You have such a cool name. Can I just say that? Mom and Dad, just a thought. What if his name was Cash Barbarian? Don't you think that, I mean, just saying it makes hair sprout on your, just a thought. I'm just saying. So Cash Barbarian is going into the water this morning. Betsy and Jack Burton are going into the water this morning. Craig Schlotke, and then Ariana, Isabella, and Maya Schlotke. Kate Curtis and Simon Curtis. You guys here somewhere? Kate's the, we can't, I can't do this for everybody. Oh, there you are. Hey, welcome. Kate and Simon Curtis. Malia Kissinger. Betsy Meyer. I saw Chip. There's, hey, Betsy, you're in the water soon. Conrad Schnell. Ann Frankel. And Sarah Frankel. And last but not least, Alex Van Summeren, who I've already seen. Okay. So, when they get into the water with Pastor Larry, some of them will get in with mom and dad, they're going to be asked two questions. Okay? The same confession that you were asked at your baptism, probably the same confession made by churches for 2,000 years. Number one, are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin and the hope of eternal life? And they'll say, I am. Number two, are you committing today by the grace of God to follow Jesus, obeying his commandments and teaching? And they'll say, I am. To those being baptized this morning, Okay, everybody listening? We gotta move cameras. We're gonna have a bunch of kids come in here soon. To those being baptized this morning and everybody watching, a day is gonna come, I promise you. A day is gonna come when you are gonna ask, am I crazy? Am I crazy to still be walking with a God that I cannot see and who sometimes does not do the things I want him to do. You're going to want something like Abram and Sarah did, a child, a romantic relationship, the perfect Christian family, a different job, maybe a different family than the one you have. I'm mean, just throwing the blank, okay? I guarantee you a day is coming when you will have to decide Will I keep the commitment I made in the water all those years ago when I said to the Lord, I will trust you even when I cannot see you? I just want to say this morning that you, are, you, are, you have already answered that question. It's like when you get, when Darcy and I got married, one of our mentors told us, guys, there's a decent chance that at some point you are going to fall in love with someone else, just so you know. You have already answered the question about what you'll do when you get married. For those being baptized this morning, you are already answering the question. 
you are saying to the church, to God in the presence of angels, I will believe even when it's hard to do so. What do I do? What do we do when our faith is failing? Look at Jesus. Look how great he is. What do we do when we feel we don't have the strength to continue and to endure? We hope in Jesus. He's a better hope. And what about when my performance, my effort, my striving falls short? Remember that Jesus, here's all that over here. Jesus has come from a completely different angle. Completely apart from the law, completely apart from your striving. He called you when you were a sinner. So rest in him, all right? I forgot to invite the worship team up, so let me, let me just invite the worship team to come on up. Here's what's gonna happen. Just in case this is your first time here, we're going to sing. Uh, by the way, we've, Kevin's chosen a song that we're going to sing right now that is like, just takes Hebrews 7, puts it to a melody, lifts it up. So we're, we're going to sing a song together. And Pastor Larry's going to come into the water one by one. People are going to come into the water with him. He'll ask the questions. When they're lowered into the water and when they come up, you all know what, does everybody know what to do? Lose your mind. Okay, just boo out of... Just get kind of, if, you, if your neighbor isn't irritated with you, you probably didn't do it right, okay? We just, we just want to cheer and celebrate and, and just honor the work that God uh, has done in these people's lives. And to say to them, when we cheer, we're saying to them, we've been there, we are with you, and we're with you to the end. Everybody got it? All right, just do whatever Kevin or whoever tells you to, okay? Here we go.